0: You? Also blessed. Um, can one of you all please open us with a word of prayer? That would be great. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Adam. Father God, thank you for your day. Thank you for um, the gathering of the saints. Uh, I pray that we can receive this uh, Sunday school lesson, that we can learn more about we Talk about your decree, and I pray that uh, as we learn this, we can see not only the logical explanation of these things, but we can also understand the practical applications of the way that we perceive you and uh, how we should worship you in our day to day life. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. So we uh, are on our sixth lesson now covering the decrees of God still, and so I'll just review again, kind of give us a recap on how we, where we've been so far. That'll help maybe some of you that haven't been here for it to understand where we have been, and also maybe like re-watch, re-listen to some of them if you have questions or about certain topics, and maybe if you missed a few, then can also just help you to understand some of the things we've already covered. So The first day we proved the doctrine from Scripture and just introduced what this topic was all about. And then after that, we reviewed who God is. And so we briefly did this because we can't do it in a comprehensive time in 40 minutes. But we basically just summed up a lot of what John had talked about in the previous lesson. And uh, the reason is because we can't really delve into the decrees of God and these kind of mysterious and difficult topics until we have a clearer idea of who God actually is. Okay, so then after that... We talked about mystery and the incomprehensibility of God. And basically discussing the fact that our human minds are so limited. And it's something I've been repeating every week. And hopefully you're getting the point now. Like, There's a lot in like these kind of topics about the decrees of God that our human minds have a difficult time with. <clears throat> but this is all to leave room in the, in the faith and in Christianity for faith. And for worship. And for mystery. So all these things are important for us to have a grasp of. And then after that, we started to look at three closely related topics. So the first one was about evil and suffering. You might remember, talked about if God decrees all things whatsoever come to pass, then what do we make of evil and suffering in the world? And is God the author of evil? And we discussed that kind of thing. And then a related question, which is very important, was what we talked about last week, which was about free will. And so we talked about, well, if if God decrees whatever comes to pass, then does this mean that we as humans don't have free will? How much free will do we have? What is this, how does this relate to God? And it, kind of this question of whether we're robotic, whether we're just automated machines that are just working, or whether we have this will that's free and can do things. And so now we come to today's topic. And before we do, we're going to first review the questions and answers. And so Mike, if you are not able to read with the back of your head, then it will help. But unless you haven't learned, oh, you have one on your phone already. Oh, this guy's a legend. He knows what this is all about. What are the decrees of God? The Decrees of God are his the eternal purpose, according to the counsel of Israel, where I for his own glory, he is ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. And how does God execute his decrees? God executes his And so today we now get to a related topic to those other previous two, which was about evil and suffering and about free will. And so what our, what our dilemma is today or our question is today is what we've been learning so far, and especially we just repeated the decrees and the teaching of the catechism. What we've been learning about is that God has eternally decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And so this raises a new dilemma, which is that since God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, then what are we supposed to do with these parts of the Bible that make it seem kind of like God changed his mind? Or that make it seem like um, he acts uh, dependently, or like acting because of the way his creatures act, that changed the way he would act. And so this creates a bit of a dilemma for our understanding. If God never changes, then why does it sometimes seem like in Scripture that he changes his mind or learns something or stuff like that. So well, we're going we're gonna to look at some of these verses that are in question later on, how someone who has that kind of a view of God would defend their case. But first, we'll just talk a little bit in general. So sadly, there are many Christians, uh, or so-called maybe, but some of them probably just confused, pastors and theologians who are not comfortable with this teaching of the decrees of God that we've been studying. They're not comfortable with the biblical view of God as a God who decrees all things in eternity in himself. So instead, they try to come up with a new view of God or an adjusted view of God that uh, undermines the Bible's teaching and undermines this doctrine about the decrees of God and also ultimately it kind of... um, is a picture of what they want God to be like as opposed to what scripture necessarily teaches him to be like. And so, what these people think is that if God is going about his business and he made you, that when he's working in the world and being God, they basically think that if a person or a creature chooses option A, for example, then that necessitates that God will choose option B. And that God didn't know ahead of time what would happen. That God doesn't know when the creature is going to choose this or when the creature is going to choose that. That God doesn't know the thoughts and intents of the heart. That God hasn't got this whole thing figured out ahead of time. That He doesn't understand what's going to come to pass. So they would take issue with that whole teaching we just looked at prior where it says, He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. They don't believe that God has done that. Instead, they would say... God has left certain aspects of the future open. So we we briefly touched on this last time in our talk about free will, but this is all very connected to this. So um, the important thing to notice is that in our in our reading of Scripture and in our lives, we know that God does act differently depending on how we act. Right. God what, you, you act in a way that's God-honoring, and God honors you and, and doesn't have to discipline you. You act in a way that's disobedient, and God does have to discipline you. But that's, So that's a reality in Scripture. So there's some truth to this kind of issue that people have, which is their dilemma, basically, of saying, well, does God have a, an idea, a clear idea of the future? Um, but the mistake that people make, apart from that true reality, that good and um, correct way to look at things is that they believe that God's acting different is somehow an indicator that God did not know what was going to happen, okay, or that He had not planned it to go that way all along, okay. So this is gonna, this is kind of again, it's a maybe a slight apology on my part because of the nature of the topic. This is a very difficult matter. Again, it's it's the matter of. God's foreknowledge. It's a matter of free will. It's a matter of evil and suffering. All these things tied together in today's thing. And so basically people who are of the opinion that God's um, knowledge does not extend into the future and that He reacts to and changes in relation to and learns from the actions of people like you and me, those people would be what we call open theists, a lot of them. There's, There's different shapes and forms of this idea. But basically such folks insinuate that God changes, okay? Ultimately, they sort of insinuate that God has to be a changing God and that He is uncertain about the future. And so there's basically two kind of broad flavors that I can think of of this kind of thinking. But I'm sure there's a lot of nuance within that, but it it all kind of boils down to two things. So there are some people that are under the impression that God can pick and choose the things that He predestines and foreknows. That there's some things he predestines and foreknows. And there's some things he doesn't know ahead of time. And he leaves certain things open to possibility. And he doesn't even know what those possibilities will be. So some people would go along that line of thinking. And others say that he doesn't predestine or foreknow anything in the future. They, just, they believe that God actually just leaves the whole future open and he just responds as it goes along. And like, they still believe usually that he's going to direct it in some way, but it's kind of a chaotic thing where it's working. But since he's all-knowing, he's sort of always having to react and change and respond. It's not like he's decreeing it ahead of time. It's not like he's made a plan and a purpose with it. So these kind of ideas, they lend themselves to this language of open theism. Okay, Open theism just refers to the fact that the future, something that's yet to come, is considered open. Okay, So it's not too complicated of a word. It's just open. So yeah, that's how you would kind of think of open theism. God's relationship to the future is open. He doesn't have a closed or like a purposed, a planned decree in the way that the catechism would teach it. So what we first want to do is we want to first look at some reasons that people would give for why they would have this kind of view. And usually they're actually going to appeal to Scripture. Okay, They're going to use the Bible to try to prove this. And that for us can be you know, a challenge if someone comes to us with the Bible and says, Look, this is proof. It's the Bible. And then of course we're going to listen. We're going to want to listen at least. And so they basically take two avenues, maybe more, Uh, this kind of illustrates the point, illustrates the thrust of what goes on. Somebody who thinks of God's relationship to the future as being open is typically going to come to you first, and they're going to say, doesn't God change his mind in Scripture? This seems very clear. And they're going to go like this, and they're going to go to Genesis 6, verse 6 to 7, and they're going to read, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Right? So that kind of that's a problem. That's a bit of a difficult one for us to deal with, right? That that text sort of seems to prove their point a little bit, but it we'll find out later that that's not the correct way to look at things, but the next part it says Another example they might give is 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 to 14. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. God may have like, wanted that to take place, I guess you'd say. But now instead, because Saul has disobeyed, his kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So again, this kind of, well, doesn't that verse prove that? And there's, many, there's several other verses in the Bible that, that would be used to prove this kind of thing, right? And maybe some of you have had conversations about this with people before. And so then the second thing that they would appeal to would be they would argue on the basis of certain verses that God actually learns things. They would say, doesn't God learn things? Look at Genesis 22, for example. Remember in Genesis 22, um, Abraham takes his son Isaac and is a test for Abraham, right? And he's supposed to take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And so then at the end of it, it says that basically God had confidence now that Abraham was a man of faith, that God, like His faith was tested and proven to be true. So then an open theist or a person with this open view, they would come by and they would say, well, look, God had to learn something about Abraham before he was able to use him. He first had to test him to learn about Abraham. Was Abraham truly uh, a valid or a useful instrument to him? And then after that, was able to put him into use. And so they would argue that God has to learn things. And in the first part, they would argue that God changes his mind certain times. And so this is admittedly a valid question, and also admittedly a difficult thing for us to deal with sometimes. And it was for me, at least, when I was first coming around to a, a better understanding of Reformed theology. It's definitely something to consider, like, wow, what does that mean? So... So these people would use these verses to argue that God does not have a rock-solid eternal decree. And the fact of the matter is these verses do not mean that God is uncertain or that he didn't know what to do. They also do not indicate that God makes mistakes like some people would want to indicate. Because really that's what it is. If you look at it one way, they might say, look, God has left the future open. He leaves everyone free and he has to be sorry about what he did. I, I think, if you really think about it, that'd be that'd be an all-powerful God making a mistake, right? So at the end of the day, we're going to see that the Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible doesn't teach that God makes mistakes. And the other thing is, they don't. These verses that they use as proof, they don't show that God needed to learn something. And later on, we're going to go through more biblical proofs. A lot of them, the same ones we've used for all of these different doctrines and dilemmas that we've been covering. And we're going to look at the fact that the Bible gives a definitive answer to all these questions. The Bible says no to them. God is not uncertain about the future. He does not need to learn anything. He doesn't make mistakes. Okay, so we can, we can prove this from Scripture later. But first, I want to give us a few helpful things to think about. So that might be that one under point one there. That might be the biggest word that we use in this lesson. <laughs> and... Uh, it's kind of wild, but anyways, so some helpful things to think about before we delve into a list of scriptures and things to prove where we're standing on this doctrine. Um, this is, first of all, let's think about anthropomorphism. Okay, that's the big word I was talking about, anthropomorphism. So first of all, does anybody know what that means? Yeah, to make something human. That's a very good answer. Yeah, that's that's pretty good, right on. So this is, this word is big and spooky. And uh, its meaning is actually pretty simple. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not one for using these words just because. I do think it's very helpful. And especially because this is such a huge, this is such a huge and pressing topic in like evangelical church. So many churches, so many seminaries, so many places. There's all these guys teaching open theism, and it's because they don't understand this concept of anthropomorphism. Okay, so if you want to repeat that 50 times to yourself today, so you can get the hang of it. I'll break it down for you, though. The dictionary definition is the attribution of human characteristics or behavior to a god, animal, or object. Okay, that's a dictionary definition. That's not too complicated. But we'll break it down even more. So anthropo is connected to the Greek word anthropos. Have you, ever, have you guys ever heard of anthropology? That helps, right? Anthropology, that's a study of humans, study of man, study of humankind, okay? So anthropos, anthropo, so man, remember Adam said, making something like a human, making something like a man. So anthropos, that's a study of man. And have you ever heard of, so there's anthropo, have you ever heard of something morphing? Or a, yeah, just a, you know, You've heard of something morphing or, mo- or to morph. Okay, so that basically means to change shape or form, right? Something morphed into whatever it was, okay? changed shape. So basically that's what it is. is something being changed into shape or form of a man, okay? So a god or a thing or an object being changed into a shape like a man. And so what would be a real-life example we've all seen of anthropomorphism? Well, an example would be... Have you ever watched The Lion King? Okay, those lions are not full lions. Those are human lions. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Those are anthropomorphic lions. They talk like humans. They sometimes do a lot of very human things. But that is not normal lion behavior. Okay? So that's a good way to understand anthropomorphism. You understand? It's not so scary anymore, right? It's just man-form-ism. Okay? It's forming something into a man. And in this case specifically relates to God. Okay, so what these people will do is they essentially, these scripture verses that use anthropomorphism, they'll very literally and rigidly apply them to God. We'll see a little bit later why that's a problem. This literary device of anthropomorphism is used throughout scripture for a specific reason, which is to help humans better understand God. It's to help us better understand what is happening. For instance, the Bible says... God stretched out his hand. How many times in the Bible does it say. God stretched out his hand. Or he delivered Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand. And an outstretched arm. But we all know from the children's catechism. It says. God is a spirit and he does not have a body like man. Right? So. What does this hand stretching out mean? What is this outstretched arm? It clearly isn't saying that God actually has arms. It's not saying that God actually has hands. So. So. There's another example. In the Psalms, it says that God will hide us in the shadow of his wings. Right? That doesn't mean that he has wings. It just means that he's going to hide us and protect us. Like as if a bird protected a, a, a chick under its wings. Right? So this anthropomorphism is very important to understand. Very often in Scripture, God is referred to with these human or animal or different terms. That doesn't mean... That God is literally a bird, or literally has hands, or literally has arms. And so it's very problematic. Those are more obvious examples, but in terms of these open theism verses, those are less obvious examples, but they're the same principle. So this language, when it talks about God changing his mind, or God regretting, this is actually something in the language that is here in order to help us. It's helping us as pea-brained human beings to better understand the infinite and incomprehensible God that we serve. And and it's innately problematic when you start using human language to describe God who is incomprehensible and undescribable and beyond us, right? So you can understand why these devices like anthropomorphism would come in handy and be useful at times. And so another thing to note is that even though there's these verses that seem to say that God changed his mind or that he had to learn something, they seem to say that, It is important and helpful to consider that the Bible never once, not one single time, ever says anything about the fact that God changes His eternal decisions or plans. Never once. Never a single verse that says He has changed or that He's changed His mind, like truly says that. Only these narrative sequences where we get illustration that applies to us as human beings, that helps God to convey His meaning or His... um, Purpose with a certain event to us as human beings. So since God's decree is set and unchanging, then logically these verses that seem like there's deliberation in God's part or that there's something that He needs to learn, logically those themselves, those events, those things that took place, they themselves were decreed from eternity past, right? Those events have been decreed from eternity. And so these... We're simply moments, like I've said from the beginning, this whole anthropomorphic language, this whole thing. All of these are moments where God is uh, trying to teach us about himself. They're not moments where he ceased from knowing or where he made mistakes or anything like that. Okay, so when, when it's talking about Noah and the flood, God's trying to teach us that he's actually very patient with sinners. He's trying to teach us that he waits very long for them to repent. That does not mean that he, didn't, that he was surprised that they didn't. It does not mean anything like that. And it also teaches us that God judges sin. Right? It teaches us these very specific lessons about who God is, what he's like, how he acts in relation to sin. And it also, because he's decreed whatever comes to pass, teaches us what he will do. He's certain that he will do this. So in the future, whenever there's an end time judgment, and whenever God sets all things right and all wickedness is removed from the earth... That was f- shone forth for us in Noah. That was shone forth for us in the image of the Ark and God feeling sorry about that, right? God isn't I don't think he's very excited about the fact that he's gonna have to destroy so many and and, and all of this. I, I don't think that's a a thing that's his number one thrust, I guess you could say, in scripture. And so he's trying to teach us that. He's trying to say, I give you time to repent, I give you love. I've given you so many things. I've given you life. I've given you joy. I've given you all these blessings. And yet these people still rebel against me. And I'm sorry about that. But the day has now come where I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to destroy the earth as you can see it. And you can see what I mean now, right? You can see that God is trying to communicate something there about His nature, about Himself. That would be very difficult to understand without this anthropomorphic language. So what is anthropomorphism? Does anybody know? Somebody different from Adam? Yeah, exactly. So it's we're getting it. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So what we need to do is we always need to maintain that when the Bible sounds like God is uncertain or changing his mind, um, we need to understand that he has decreed that very moment to take place in history. And that way of speaking is for us, our small minds, to better understand the impact of sin and disobedience, as well as His grace and His patience with us. So it's not to be taken as some sort of indication that God is less knowledgeable or less powerful than what the Bible clearly says He is, okay? And we're going to delve into more about how powerful God is and how knowledgeable God is a little bit later. But I've, I've got a... This is kind of encapsulates everything I've been teaching but this is an excellent and very famous quote from John Calvin that explains this and I also like that don't don't use that as an insult calling people anthropomorphites okay <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to like it so so here's a quote from Calvin he says the hel- the anthropomorph okay the anthropomorphites who dream of a corporeal god corporeal just means to do with human body Bought, like, a norm, like a human relation. So the, the anthropomorphites who dream of a corporeal God because mouth, ears, eyes, hands, and feet are often ascribed to him in Scripture are easily refuted. And then Calvin comes in here with a, a signature, a little bit harsh treatment of those who don't understand his point. He says, "'For who is so devoid of intellect?' As not to understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. Okay, I'm going to translate that into, God, when He speaks with anthropomorphism, talks to us, full-grown human beings, as though we are a little baby. How do you talk to a little baby? You talk with baby talk. You talk with your hands. You talk with different things that you wouldn't otherwise need to talk with. That's the way God is communicating with us when He's, he's speaking in these ways in Scripture. Okay, so, um, so yeah. For who is so devoid of intellect as to as not to understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children? Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of a being God is, as accommodate the knowledge of Him to our feebleness. That's what I've been trying to say, right? His knowledge who He truly is, trying to communicate that to us, trying to connect that to us in a way that we can understand, in our feebleness, as Calvin calls it. And then it says, in doing so, He must, of course, stoop far below His proper height. Right? He stoops so low that He would, uh, the God who is a spirit, who's beyond and above all things, would so, go so far as to say, I have a hand. I have a hand like you do, Tony. I have a hand like you do, Adam. Or He's going to say, I have a wing, like that little chicken in your ha- in your barn, okay? He, he stoops so low to communicate to us in a way that we can understand, right? That's what he's doing in all these verses that people will use to twist and manipulate who God is. And so you should not call them anthropomorphites, but that is what they are, and that's not a good way to read Scripture. Okay, so next we're going to go on to a biblical response to this. So some biblical truths that help us to answer this kind of thing. Um, yeah we need to basically have this it's a, it's a classic biblical interpretive concept which is don't take a single verse or a single event in isolation and not read it in the context of the whole Bible Right, the whole Bible when read as a big picture and you understand all the different parts helps to explain the individual verses the individual problems the individual things that you come across the little dilemmas that seeming difficulties that people might bring about about so that's what we're trying to do we're have, trying to have a broad understanding of these big pictured concepts that the bible says very plainly very straightforwardly about god and when we do that when we have those straightforward and clear things delineated right then we can read these other verses that are a little less clear and we can make sense of them and we can use them to our profit in fact, other people, they miss these very clear teachings, right? They miss these very obvious biblical concepts, and then they go back and read the more, le- the less clear things, and they distort the clear things. They distort who God is because they read the unclear or less clear things um, through that lens of them being the primary concepts or the primary ideas that we have in mind regarding God. And so let's just go through the list here. You think I have six things. This is, I don't think this is exhaustive. And this is also very much repeated from before. This is probably my favorite one to keep on repeating during the decrees of God. But God does not change. Okay, That's the first thing. God does not change. Malachi 3.6. Hopefully you got it memorized by now. I am the Lord. I do not change. That's it. So easy to memorize. I am the Lord. I do not change. Malachi 3.6. Then the next concept: God knows all His works from the beginning, and then that also applies to the end. Okay, all His works from the beginning to the end. Then Ephesians 1.11 says, "God works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things." Okay, so you, the question you're going to have to ask is, "What are all things?" Well, all things are all things. Okay, so you don't have to read the Bible in this confusing way where you take words like all. And uh, don't assume that when God says he works all things, then you shouldn't be like the open theist and say, no, he in fact only works some things. No, no, it actually says quite clearly, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And all of these things that we've covered so far necessitate that God knows the future. If he's going to work all things according to the counsel of his will, then he knows the future and not only knows it, but he plans it out. Most notable verse, again, I've repeated this probably almost every lesson, Isaiah 46, verse 9 to 10. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. This is right here. Declaring the end from the beginning. God declaring the end from the beginning. So that's seems very directly a contradiction to anyone who thinks God's view of the future is open, uncertain, unpredictable, hard for him to wrap his mind around. No, he declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. He declares them way before they're even yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. That's that counsel I talked about in Ephesians 1.11. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He does whatever he pleases, which is another one of our points down there. Another thing to think about is God doesn't depend on anyone. An open theist says, God is dependent on the way Miss Bunny is going to act. And then he's going to change his mind or he's going to react accordingly to fix the situation. He's depending on you somehow. He's depending on you to determine the future, and then he has to quick make up a plan B to fix it, right? That's what an open theist would say. But that's not the correct view of God. God does not depend on anyone. In Acts 17, verse 24 to 25, it teaches, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't depend on us for anything. He doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay? Like it would be very ridiculous if the very God who gave you the life and the breath and the everything that you have was then all, all of a sudden leaving the whole future open to your decisions. Leaving the whole of the future of the world open to your decisions. And this is especially ridiculous in light of the fact that he didn't say that he did that. He said, in fact, I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that are not yet done, right? He declares the end from the beginning. He does not leave the future open. And he doesn't depend on anyone. The Lord is not dependent on us for anything. And so he does not base his purpose, plan, or his decisions on humans. But on his own perfect will. On his goodness. On his power that he has. And then the other thing, like at the end of uh, that Isaiah verse that I read, we see that God does whatever He pleases. This is also repeated in Psalm one fifteen, verse three. That's straightforward enough, right? He does whatever He wants with whatever He wants. That includes us. That includes all of our cells. That includes our minds. That includes every single thing on this whole earth. He does whatever He wants, whenever He wants it. God does what He pleases, and His power has no limits. The next thing we know is that God knows all things, okay He knows all things, which means he also knows how you 're going to choose this way or that. He knows the way that the future is going to go that's John first John three verse 20. Open theism actually puts a limit on god's knowledge right they're basically suggesting that he doesn't know the decisions of mankind, that he doesn't know how his people will act, and that this means that um, he would need to be ignorant of certain things he 's actually ignorant of the future he's ignorant of their actions and that things that he'd had no idea about and that he would have to respond to and that he didn't know would happen as a result of the way that those people acted and so you have to understand it's very important that we just realize all the time god knows all things all things which is also by the way one very scary fact okay if you're in sin and you're a sinner like me then it means that there's a very scary fact because a God who knows all things knows every single thing you do, every single thing you think, every single thing you say, every single way you treat your family, every single thing. And so we live in light of that fact that God knows all things. And everyone kind of, I feel like, has to acknowledge this at some point. Like if, you've, if He's created our very brain and our very mind and our very life, like God knows all things. And we live in the light of that. But that's also encouraging because it's a good motivation to not sin. It's a motivation to be upright. Even when you're by yourself and you think you can get away with something, right? God still knows. He knows all things. We, we look at it this way so often, then all of a sudden when it comes to the future, some people want to throw the future open as though God doesn't know about the future. Scripture says regarding God knowing all things that God knows the very hairs on our heads and he knows when a sparrow dies. He knows all of these things. So how could he not know the actions and the will of his creatures? How, how, could he not, how could he not have a grasp of the future and the way that things will go? And then the last thing I want to say is not a verse, but like what about prophecy? We already talked about that in Isaiah where he says, from ancient times I declare things that are not yet done. Isaiah was a prophet, right? What about prophecy? It would be a very ridiculous notion for us to talk about um, God's prophecies and his amazing prophecies throughout Scripture if he didn't know the future, right? God goes up to one man in the year 800 BC and he says, this will happen 800 years from now. How can an open theist contend with that concept? I don't know. It's very difficult. How How can the future be open? How can that be real if literally God's saying, no, in 800 years from now, Jesus Christ is going to come and die on a cross. And I already know that that's going to happen. Right. I, I don't think that I don't think that's a reasonable thing to think in light of God's prophecies. And so we have uh, one helpful quote to look at that kind of illumines this even a little bit more. And then we're going to do a couple concluding thoughts and then we'll be on our way. This guy, a Baracko, we've had him with us a few times. I don't even know. I might have used this quote before. I don't know. He says a lot of the same and good things. But he goes, God's decree is immutable. Does anyone, everyone knows what immutable means by now, I think. doesn't change. Okay, God's decree doesn't change. If God were to change his decree, it would either be because subsequent to the decree, he perceived that it was not good, there being a better option, or because... A circumstance presented itself preventing him from executing his decree. And neither of these two possibilities can be true concerning God. The first possibility cannot be true because he is the only wise God. Remember the first possibility? He perceived that it was not good and that there being a better option. So if he's the only wise God... It, that, that actually proves that he isn't the only wise God. If he made a, That would be him making a mistake, right? He decreed something, then changed his mind. That means he would have at that moment have lacked knowledge about something. And he would have made a decree that he didn't agree with or that he didn't like. So that's the first problem. And then the second one cannot be true as he is the omnipotent one. Okay, so if it says there that something, a circumstance presented itself preventing him from executing his decree... If something prevented God from doing what He wanted to do, then all of a sudden that truth that we read earlier where it says God does whatever He pleases, the fact that He's omnipotent, which means all-powerful, that would be eliminated, right? So the first problem is that open theism messes up God's um, wisdom and knowledge. It says God doesn't know all things. He only knows some things, or He chooses to know only some things. And the second problem is that it says that God... um, lacks some power because something came in. Some little human being came in and thwarted his whole plan, his whole future idea of how things should go. And so this is a very helpful thing to just remember. Open theism, all these other distortions, every, everything that's a distortion from the biblical view of God and from Scripture, it always either undermines God's power or undermines God's knowledge, which are two things that are so abundantly clear and so hammered out throughout the whole Bible that you couldn't... Um, you couldn't come away from reading scripture thinking that God only knows some things. And that God only has a little bit of power. Or has some limits to his power. I don't think you can reasonably come to that conclusion. Unless you want him to not be like that. Unless you want him to not be like that. Which is ultimately the heart problem. beyond Behind all of these wrong ideas of God. And so just in concluding. We've seen that for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, the Bible uh, has made it very clear that even though certain verses sound a little bit as if God changes his mind or is undecided that's not the case or that he learned something that's not the case God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass this is all in line with his nature and who he is and so it'd be a huge mistake it'd be a huge mistake to have this wrong view of God it'd be a huge mistake to read these Less clear passages and distort the clear picture of what the scriptures say about God. And the implications for this are really tremendous. Okay? They're really huge for our faith and our life. They're truly destructive, like what Adam prayed at the beginning, that we'd have application for our daily life. That this big words and stuff would all have some application and some relevance to our daily life. I'm not pretending to have all the implications here. I'm just having some two really big ones for your Christian walk. Why you don't want to believe in a wrong view of God like an open theist or somebody who doesn't believe that God has an understanding of the future. The first one is that since God's decree is eternal, God's word and promises are eternal. Okay? How much confidence can you have in the words of God, in the prophecies of God, in the truths of His word, if God doesn't know the future? If God doesn't have all knowledge and all power? This is an amazing comfort for us as Christians to know that Everything is in His hand. The future is in His hand. His promises are secure. All of this is secure because God never changes. He never changes His mind. He knows all things. He doesn't have to learn things. He's set in stone. He's, his decrees are amazing and they're set rock solid. And the last thing, you can already, you've already read it, so it's, it's old news to you now, um, is God's decree is eternal and so our salvation is eternal. How can God say, you can come to me and have eternal life? You can have eternal life. The way he knows that is because he's the one who paid for it, planned it. He's the one who also gave you that eternal life. And he's the one who's going to make it a reality in the future. He's the one who's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. He's the one who's going to resurrect you from the dead. All these things are future things. But he tells you in the today, the now, as we go to worship, that you can have eternal life already. So if you had an open view of the future that was constantly changing, how on earth could we have any confidence that we'd actually have a a share in or a a piece of the eternal and powerful saving work of the gospel? How could you have any confidence? If you just, you know, did something to offend God, if you sinned again, or if you failed to please Him in some way, how do you know that in the future, if God doesn't know the future and His promises aren't secure, how do you know that He's not going to hold you then? How do you know that he's not going to continue to um, work his plan out in your life? How do you know that your salvation isn't eternally secure, right? So there's there's no hope. There's no joy. In fact, I feel that the gospel is completely undermined. And who God is is completely undermined by this kind of a view of him, right? It's only because he has decreed salvation eternally in himself and that he has made the way possible for it and that his own glory is at stake. His own glory, his own namesake. When Jason or Catherine or somebody accepts Christ and becomes a member of his body, his own glory is at stake in that. And he knows the future and he's going to bring it to completion. So we have eternal security and we have joy. We have the stability to go out and worship God. We have the stability to go and please God, to go and love God, to go and live with God, because we know that the future is in his hands, right? We know that everything is in his hands, the whole the whole future—it's not an open, it's not an open map with endless possibilities of where we could fall off and we could stumble and fall. That's not the case. Truly, we could sin, we could stumble and fall, but because God, in His eternal goodness, is so rock solid and so stable in this, He's made this, um, this, this decree. He's decreed whatsoever comes to pass, and the future is not open. It's not a blank slate to Him, and so we can have confidence in our worship in our life. And we can have joy in our faith. And so let's close in a word of prayer. And then we'll head off to worship the Lord. Father God in heaven. uh, Lord we thank you so much that you are in control of all things. That you know the future from the beginning of creation. You know the future. And you have it as rock solid and as steady as any other thing that we see around us today. And um, that gives us a great deal of hope, Lord. I pray that our eyes would be fixed on the gospel, on Jesus Christ, and on that solid rock that he is, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.